And uh, I would invite you this morning, if you have them with you in whatever form, be it electronic or good old-fashioned paper and ink, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Micah. Micah, our next minor prophet in this series. And we're going to be in Micah chapters 1 and 2 this morning. I have lost track of how many young people I've spoken to or how many others I've heard tell their story and their story kind of follows this theme. They say something like to the effect, I determined when I was 18 and when I was out of high school, I was going to move out and be my own person. I was going to get out from under the rules of my household. I was going to be free. And they follow that by saying, so I decided that I would join the military. And I have heard that time and time again. And it's like, did you just hear yourself? And yet so often that happened, those individuals would join the military, the Marines, the Army, the Navy, the, the Air Force, the Coast Guard, and they would go through boot camp. And it was interesting, just after eight weeks of boot camp, when they would come back and you would greet this person, they were somebody a little bit different because they had understood in a very strong way that within the boundaries of some rules and discipline, there was some freedom. Freedom is one of those interesting concepts. All too often when someone talks about freedom, it's too easy to think that freedom is doing whatever I want. There was a song way back in the 90s, and we're talking the 1990s, not the 1890s, and the chorus was, kept going on, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm free to do whatever I want. Any old time. And sometimes we think that's freedom. I'm free to do whatever I want any old time. And yet there's a simple truth about freedom that we don't often talk about. And that is, if freedom is to be fully enjoyed by everyone, it's always enjoyed within clear boundaries or guidelines. You are most free driving up and down Geneva Road when everybody stays in their own lane. And there's a great deal of freedom. When somebody decides they don't want to stay in their own line, it's lane, it's chaos. Micah wrote in the 8th century BCE. God's people during that time were enjoying some freedom. We've talked about that throughout the Minor Prophets. It's interesting, as I study the Minor Prophets more and more, I realize so often they were speaking to times when things were going well. Uh, when we get to the book of Micah in verse 1, chapter 1, we discover his prophetic ministry spanned three kings during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. The, collectively, those reigns went about 61 years. And, and if you wanted to uh, look at their existence sometime, maybe this afternoon, 
Take your Bible and turn to 2 Chronicles and begin in chapter 26 and read all the way through chapter 32 and you would get a real good overview uh, of those kings. It was a roller coaster existence in those 61 years. Now, I want to give you just a brief synopsis because part of what we understand is when there is instability in leadership, there is instability everywhere else. So the first king that Micah mentions that he was prophesying during the reign of was, was a guy by the name of Jotham. To understand Jotham, you've got to, just get a, you've got to take one step back and get a, a glimpse of his dad. His dad was a guy by the name of Uzziah. And he was on the throne for 52 years. And he was good. He was a good king. He did good things. He messed up near the end of his reign when he thought that he was so good and so powerful that he could, he could kind of neglect God's rules. And so he decided to go in and burn incense in the temple where he wasn't supposed to go. And he was struck with leprosy. And so during the final years of his reign, he's kind of hidden away with leprosy. And his son Jotham is reigning. And Jotham was a good guy. Jotham was very good when he took over. In fact, 2 Chronicles 27.6 says, Jotham was, grew powerful because he walked steadfastly before the Lord his God. He walked steadfastly. He followed God. And yet, for some reason, the people didn't follow him. They didn't follow his dedication to God. They, they continued in their idol worship. And even more amazing is, for some reason, he wasn't influential in his family. Because when he died, his son Ahaz took over. Ahaz did not follow the ways of God. Ahaz was not a good king. And in fact, Ahaz found himself time and again with one of Micah's contemporaries, a guy by the name of Isaiah, and Isaiah would confront Ahaz time and again. Second Chronicles chapter two, beginning in verse 20, uh, chapter twenty-eight, beginning in verse two, tells us that Ahaz worshipped the Baals. Ahaz actually took two of his infant sons, and he sacrificed them. It says he made them go through the fire. There was a god whose name was Molech. And his statue was a statue like this with his arms slanted down. And in his belly was a hot fire. To sacrifice a child to Molech, I mean, you took this child and you put it on those arms and that infant would roll into the fire and you were giving a sacrifice to the god of Molech. That's Ahaz. He's, his dad was Jotham. His grandpa was Uzziah. They were good guys. And he said, no way. I'm not going to do that. It says he went on and engaged in other detestable practices. What could be worse? And so God tries to get his attention. And he tries to get his attention by having a group of people called the Arameans and the nation of Israel up north. And they kind of come together and they're going to attack him. And there's a famous passage in Isaiah 7 where Isaiah says, Ask the Lord for a sign and he will show you what he's going to do. And Ahaz gets all high and mighty and says, 
I am not going to ask God for a sign. Now, this is a guy that sacrifices his kids to a false god. And that's where Isaiah says that famous passage we use at Christmas. Behold, the virgin will be with child and shall bring forth a son. And he goes on to say before that child is even weaned, before he's even eating solid food, these enemy kings are going to be wiped out if you trust God. Ahaz says, ah, let's see, God, Assyria, God, Assyria, I'm going to go with Assyria. And he turns the temple into a place of worship of the Assyrian gods. He takes the gold and all the fine things from the temple and he sends them up to Assyria as tribute. And Assyria says, we got a live one here. And they take over and they oppress the people. And eventually Ahaz is out of the picture. And oddly enough, he has a son by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah is a good king. Hezekiah stands up to the Assyrians and says, we're not paying you tribute anymore. We're not giving you anything. Hezekiah goes and tears down the high places. He restores the temple worship. He does great stuff. And you would think that that would make a difference. But when you move on in the history, Hezekiah's son is Manasseh. And he's even worse than Ahaz. What a roller coaster existence. In the span of the reigns of these three kings, Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, God sends a prophet, a contemporary of Isaiah, like we've said. His name is Micah. And his job is to warn the people, both Israel and Judah, that the freedom they've enjoyed is, in essence, been, they've been abusing it. They've been using it for their own good. They haven't been following God. And he wants them to know that real change is possible. And that's true for any one of us. Real change is possible, but you've got to change from the inside out. The heart has to change before the rest of us changes. If you've ever been on any sort of a a weight loss program, you know that they talk about you've got to change your habits. It's not just what you eat. It's you're changing your habits. There's got to be some exercise to go with that. There's some other things because change isn't just changing my behavior. It's changing my thinking process. And one of the things that we need to be aware of this morning is that God's words are not just for an isolated people in what we call the Middle East some 2,800 years ago. Look at Micah 1, chapter two, verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Listen, earth, all who live in it, that the sovereign God, Lord, may bear witness against you, the Lord, from his holy temple." Hear you people, all of you. It's for every one of us. It's not just for isolated people. Listen, earth, and all who live in it. That's you and me. What we're going to go through in the next few weeks in the book of Micah is for all of us. Now, the specifics were communicated directly to Judah and Israel, those two kingdoms of the nation Israel that split up. But the reality is, there are principles that we're going to discuss that are applicable to every one of us. This is one of the few minor prophets that has a truly 
universal tone about it. Now, the first section, and we're taking this in some broad swaths here today, is chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. And, and, and it begins in verse 3, says, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour out her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temples' gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images since she gathered her gifts from wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes they will again be used. Whoa, that is harsh language. God is saying, in a sense, I'm going to step in and I'm going to inspect and I'm going to deal. I've seen a look of fear in the lives of my children when they were younger. And I know that look of fear because I've experienced that same look of fear in my own life. It would come from a simple command. Scott, go clean your room. And so I would go down to my room and I would kind of do a few things and all. And then I would say, okay, I'm done. I'm going out. Oh, 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 wait, wait, wait. My mother would say these words. I'm coming down to inspect. Sometimes I was foolishly brave enough to think I had done a good job. And she would come in and either I would be doing more cleaning or the absolute worst would happen. She would clean with me. Other times she would say, I'm coming down to inspect. And I'd say, wait, 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 wait. I, I, I saw a couple things I missed. And then, now, if you have a mom who lets your room live and let live, you need to take her out to lunch today and thank her for that. But uh, my mom did not live and let live. She had very high standards. And so I would, I would have to clean up and, and, and all. And, and sometimes when I was out, my mother would clean my room for me. And for weeks, I couldn't find anything. I remember once somebody went into my office and cleaned my desk for me. It was like, <gasps> how do I, I was like paralyzed. God says, I'm coming to inspect. I've warned you repeatedly, nation of Israel. I've warned you repeatedly, Jerusalem, nation of Judah. I've warned you repeatedly to clean up your act, and now I'm stepping in. God is a holy God. God is a powerful God. God is a righteous God. And we tend to forget those things. We all too often want to focus on God's love and his mercy and his forgiveness. And those are wonderful things. But if you have love and mercy and forgiveness and all the other positive qualities without holiness and righteousness and justness, 
than what you actually have as a permissive God. And if God is one thing, he's not permissive. God points to his power. I'm coming. The mountains will melt beneath me. The water like wax. I'm going to tread on the earth. He wants them to know, I am a God who has the power to do something. I am the God who has the power to make a difference. And what he's so upset about is the people that call themselves his people haven't followed him. And here's the first. got five lessons we're going to look at today. Here's the first one. What I fail to clean up in my life will eventually be cleaned up by God. That's a difficult thing. That's a a thing that's full of pain and suffering and loss and fear and struggle. See, it was always better, always better if I cleaned my room than if mom had to clean it. Always better if I clean my room to her specifications. Side note, my mother said, you have complete freedom to cook anything you want in my kitchen. I want you to experiment. I want you to learn to cook. But when you're done, the kitchen is clean to my specifications. I learned a good habit. My wife enjoys some cooking from me and also enjoys the fact that I clean the kitchen. There are good habits to learn. God says, it's better if you clean up your life than if you expect me to. Now, mind you, the the, the hand of judgment may not happen during this life. And, and, And in fact... Sometimes God's discipline is not just to, you know, some people go, I'm being punished by God. God doesn't punish in the way that you and I think. What God does is he wisely allows us, when we choose to go our own direction, when we choose to step outside of his boundaries, when we choose to think that we can be free to do whatever we want any old time, God wisely allows us to go our way and to suffer the natural consequences of foolish decisions. When you and I foolishly go our own way against any advice, God's advice or godly people that give advice to us, there is going to be pain, there's going to be heartache, there may be financial loss, there may be relational loss, there may be an emotional price to pay. God lets us experience the consequences of our choices. So Micah says, What is Jacob's transgression? We're speaking about Israel. Is it not Samaria? You say, how does that work? Well, he says, what is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? What's he talking about? What he's talking about is this. When he mentions Samaria, that was the capital of that northern kingdom that's sometimes called Israel or Jacob. When he mentions Jerusalem, that is the capital of that southern kingdom that we call Judah. And basically what he's saying is those two places represent the nations that they lead. It's like when someone says, Washington, D.C. said today. Well, Washington, D.C. doesn't speak, but Washington represents the United States of America. Now, whether I agree or disagree with Washington doesn't matter. When they speak, they're representing America. 
If, if we hear word came from Springfield today, da, 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 Springfield represents Illinois. So what God is saying is your capitals represent you and the way they go, the way the nation goes. And it happened. God came to Israel, the northern kingdom, by way of the Assyrians, and they were wiped out. Years later, God came to Judah by way of the Babylonians, and the city was, Jerusalem was destroyed, and Solomon's temple was destroyed, and all of it could have been averted if they would have just listened and cleaned up from the inside out. But what about those who have listened? What about those who have followed God? What, what about those who see this and say, wow, God's carrying out his judgment. They're suffering the consequences. How do they respond? It's too easy. We talked about it last week with Jonah. It, it's too easy to get kind of a high and mighty. Serves them right. They should have done it right the first time. But that's not Micah's response. Notice, beginning in verse 9. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even Jerusalem itself. Micah says, I grieve. I grieve to see people suffer because of their own poor choices, and even suffer the judgment of God. He says, I grieve. He calls for this national mourning. Let's all mourn together. And then he reminds the people that no one will be untouched by God's judgment. And there's an interesting bit of wordplay in verses 10 through 15. Each place that's mentioned kind of has this word picture. For instance, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 10. Tell it not to Gath, weep not at all in Beth Oprah. Beth Oprah kind of sounds like house of dust. So notice, in Beth Oprah, roll in the dust. In the house of dust, roll in the dust. And he has these different word plays. You know, um, those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief. The word Maroth sounds like the Hebrew word bitter. And so there's this wordplay. It would be like us saying, Washington, D.C. will be washed up. Phoenix is going to get nixed. You know, you could go on down the line, and all of these cities, they're going to, it's just this widespread harm that's going to be done, this judgment, and it happened. The northern kingdom, there were ten tribes of Israel that made up the northern kingdom, after Assyria came through, they got scattered so much throughout the known world. We talk about the lost tribes of Israel. They were so intermingled with other people and spread about. No, they really lost their identity. And in verse 16, Micah comes back and he says this, Shave your head in mourning. For the children in whom you delight, make yourself as bald as the vulture, for they will go into, go from you into exile. Our second lesson. 
Like God, I should grieve over the misfortune of others. I don't care what caused the loss. It may have been because of their own foolishness. I need to grieve when people struggle and suffer because of their own foolish choices. It should break my heart. Remember, we serve a God who does not take delight in punishing the wicked. So why would I, if I call myself his followers, should I delight in the sufferings of others? I need to grieve over the misfortune of others. You see, Micah hoped that if the nation could only sense the devastation that was going to befall them, that somehow they would turn to God. If they could only get a glimpse of what was going to happen, maybe they could turn to God. Maybe they could turn to God and it would be averted. I think, however they arranged the minor prophets, I think the, reason, the, the, the emphasis of Jonah and that whole prophecy being next to Micah was the Ninevites heard, saw, heard about what God was going to do and they relented and God held back. And what a great reminder for us, when we turn and turn to God, He doesn't always pay us the penalty that we were looking for. He, he relents. He, he holds back. Maybe you could hold back. Does the fact that you and I will one day face the living God make any difference in our lives today? Years ago, we had a bunch of volunteers that decided to run the Alpha Course here at Pleasant Hill Community Church. I don't know if you've heard of the Alpha Course or not. It's been around for quite a while. It started in, in London at Holy Trinity Brompton. The, the guy that was part of the big start of it was a pastor by the name of Nicky Gumbel. And in fact, the, at that time, the videos that we watched were actually Nicky Gumbel speaking. And so uh, they started to run the Alpha Course, and we, we made it work for Pleasant Hill Community Church. And uh, periodically, I got asked to come in. The whole idea for Alpha is you can have a safe place to ask all your questions. Well, it's great to ask all the questions, but sometimes you want to get a little bit of a, an answer to those questions. So periodically, they bring me in and maybe ask me to ex have some explanation. One week one of the individuals who was exploring Christianity pointed to the thief on the cross in the account with Jesus. And remember, that was a last-minute confession, you know. Lord, in this, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And this guy asked, so if that's true, why can't I just live my life any way I choose and right before I die say, Dear Jesus, I give my life to you. I accept Jesus Christ as my Savior. Boom, I'm in heaven. Being a wise teacher, I said, I want you to think about that and we'll talk about it next week. Because I didn't have an answer in that moment. Well, he... he took me seriously, thankfully. He went home and he thought about it. The next week came, I said, let's go back to, to that question again. What's been your thinking process over the week? And he just looks at me and smiled and he said, yeah, I got my answer this week. 
I have no clue when that time is going to come. And I have no clue what the circumstances will be that surround my death. So it's best if I don't wait, because I may not have opportunity to do that. I had the privilege several months later to baptize that man and his wife and their son. Uh, You see, when we hear of God's impending judgment, now is the time to make changes. Now that gets us up to chapter 2. What was going on in Judah that made God so angry? What was going on that made him send Micah to tell them about impending judgment. It wasn't just the idol worship. That would have been enough. That was bad enough. But it was also the way God's people were treating one another. Look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. What a word picture. Now, there are two ways you can take that second clause there, but let's start first. They plan iniquity. They, they write their to-do list, and part of their to-do list is to do something evil to somebody else. I've got a to-do list this week. Make the new usher schedule or greeter schedule for September and October. Defraud somebody out of their money. You know, it's not on my to-do list, don't worry. But that's what they were doing. And it says they go to they, those who plot evil on their beds... One of two ways you could take that. Either it's they lay in bed at night and they plot evil. Or it could also be seen as because of the way that they ate back in the ancient world by reclining on couches. They're sitting around the dinner table plotting evil. Either way, it's not good. And they had one goal in mind. I want to get wealthier no matter what it takes, and I have the power to do it. When you talk about the power of privilege, it's not a brand new concept. It's been happening for well over 2,800 years. They have the power to do it. So in the morning, they carry it out. Plan your work, work your plan, right? So here's my plan. My work is to take Joe's house. I want Joe's house, I like that house, and I have the power to do it because I'm going to go to the banker and I'm going to call in his loan, I'm going to call his mortgage today. I have the power to do it because I can swing my influence and now it's my house. That was what they were doing. And you know, remember this in the Bible. God is not against wealth. But he is against the ways that we sometimes obtain wealth. He wants it obtained by honest means. They would plot and carry out their schemes. They would, in the morning, they carried out because it's in their power to do it. They can do it. They see a field, they covet it. I like that field. I'm taking it. 
I like that house. I'm taking it. I'm sorry that you're homeless. Trust me, it's not personal. It's just business. But this is now my home. You have to get out. It was that type of stuff going on. They, they robbed them of their inheritance. I know that your dad was going to leave this farm to you and you were going to take over, but, well, my, my attorneys and I have worked out a few things with your estate's attorney. It's our field now. I'm sorry, you have no inheritance. I know you were banking on that to send your kids to college, but it's mine now. That angers God. And believe me, God is a God who cares about social justice. Write down Exodus chapter 22, verses 25 and 26. God tells in those, in those verses, those early days of the nation being formed, if you've cheated the poor, one day you'll be poor. One day you'll be mar- mocked. One day there'll be no one to inherit your land. You'll lost it from your property. God says in those passages, when you go and, you, uh, and somebody asks you for money and they're poor but they need help and you loan them some money and they give you their coat for collateral, at night when it gets cold and the only thing they have to keep them warm is the coat that's in your hand, you go back to that person You give them their coat for the night so they can stay warm. You are compassionate to the people you don't just take. Here's our third lesson for today. I should seek to minister to the less fortunate in any way I can. I need to, if if I have been blessed with ample and even then some, how can I bless someone else? Now, don't feel guilty if you have a garage sale planned for the next, sometime in the next few weeks. That's fine. You do you. Do you. My wife and I determined after one garage sale, we would never do garage sales again. One, the pricing. Two, I don't care if you work for eight hours and you made $300, you put 48 hours into just getting that. It boils down to nothing. But three, We became in our own hearts convicted that if God gave me the ability to have this item, then maybe I can bless someone else by giving it to them, as long as it's in good shape. And it has been a joy to do that, to help someone else in need, to give something to them that they needed. A joy. And and so God says, When you have opportunity, you need to help the less fortunate any way you can. Now, I get it, because I've sat here in this office, and I've had people come in and ask for things and and ask for help, and, and, and it seems like sometimes there are people who are professionally less fortunate. I get that, because God expects all of us to do our best, to work hard, to have a good work ethic. The Bible in the book of Proverbs, in 2 Thessalonians, speak very harshly, speaks very harshly against those who are lazy and just won't work and expect everybody else to take care of them. Where to work? The situation in Judah was, it wasn't lazy people. These are good, hard-working people who come on tough times, who have struggles, and they're being exploited, not helped. 
As believers, we ought to be the kind of people who offer help to others in such a way as to help them keep their dignity. Mike is not done. There's a, third, a second group that he addresses. It's the spiritual leadership. You pick it up in verse 6. If your Bible has little headings that aren't inspired, but they're helpful, it says false prophets. And, 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 and the false prophets were saying, don't prophesy. Don't prophesy about these things. Disgrace is not going to overtake us. Micah, be quiet. Don't say that stuff. That's, that's not user-friendly. You're not helping our, our ego. You're not building us up. You descendants of Jacob, it should, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? No, God isn't God's not going to do that. God's not, God is mercy. He's just, he's forgiveness. He's grace. You're his chosen people. And you know who the people listen to? Who would you rather listen to? The guy that says gloom and doom is coming or the guy that says, hey, it's all going to be good. It's all going to be fine. Just follow me. You see, words that speak freedom without boundaries sound good initially. You can do anything you want. You can have all the things that you want. You can, your life is going to be great. You don't, you get to, you be your authentic self and set your own rules. Don't listen to those other rules. That sounds good. It sounds user friendly. It sounds kind. And, and, and the people even responded. Uh, you pick it up in verse 8. Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without care, like men running, returning from battle. You, you have no boundaries. You'll take whatever you want when you want it. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. You're taking advantage of, of, of women and children for your own personal wealth. Because why do I need God? I've got everything at my fingertips. Something I've observed over the years, and this is just my own observation, there can be a tendency for us to shift our dependency when things are going well. I've observed, and this is, this is just Scott Howington observation, I've seen folks that the wealthier and more educated they came, they became, the, the less they felt they needed God. Why do I need God? I, I've got a bank account that will blow your mind. Why do I need God? I've got advanced degrees like you wouldn't believe. I'm intelligent. I'm wealthy. Why do I need God? That was happening in Micah's day, and as wealth grew, the importance of what God wanted decreased. Look at verse 11. If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I'll prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. Somebody comes and says, you're going to have all you want, all the wine you could drink, all the beer you could drink, all the partying you could have. We're going to just have a great time. God is on our side. The people are going, yeah, preach it, bro. 
But in all of his sarcasm, Micah's making a point. It's our fourth lesson today. It's a universal lesson. Leadership has the responsibility to speak truth. Leadership has a responsibility to speak truth, even when truth is hard to swallow. Micah was not popular because he told it like it was to the people who only wanted to hear a message based on their personal comfort and security. But here's one of the unique things about Micah's prophecy. There's always a glimmer of hope and promise. It would seem that God can't help but let his people know there's still hope. Yes, things are going to happen, but there's still hope. There's still a promise for the future. There is still a God who loves you and has compassion and does want to restore relationship for you. And we see that in the last few verses of chapter 2. And what we see here, finally, is God consistently offers the reality of hope. That does not minimize the reality of judgment and devastation, but it's a reminder of a God who has a greater plan than just judgment. It's it's a reminder of a God who's not thwarted by the calamities in our world. It's a reminder of God who's not wringing his hands about the demise of the culture. It's a reminder of God that a reminder that God is going to judge this earth. God is going to judge his nations, all nations, for their sins. God is going to judge you and me someday. He cannot do less. That's his character. But the reality is God has already provided a means of salvation and hope. Look at these words. Get the gentleness of them. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng, the place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord is at their head. God, that's that promise. It it has those inklings of the good shepherd. I'm going to bring them together. And I'm going to gather them. Then I'm going to go out ahead of them, he says. And they'll follow me. I'll lead them. That's hope. God already provided that. He was already planning Long before Jesus came, he was already planning for it. So that when Jesus came and said, I'm the good shepherd, people who knew should have said, oh, this is what's been prophesied in Micah and Ezekiel and other places. Uh, We need to follow him. Listen to these words. There is no hope apart from judgment. There is no judgment apart from hope. God will be just, and that means judgment, but he will be merciful, and that means hope. And hope comes through judgment. What else is the cross of Christ than the eternal vindication of the justice of God and the eternal proclamation of the mercy of God? In the cross, we have God's justice, and we have God's mercy. Micah was looking forward to a time He wanted his people to experience it now, but if they wouldn't, he knew that one day God would provide. God finishes many of his devastating messages of justice, of judgment, with a message of hope. God is not a permissive God. 
but he's perfectly just. God wanted his people, God wants you and me, his people, to be people of justice and mercy and hope. And that provides for us freedom from the fear of judgment. Freedom. It's an amazing reality. Freedom is best lived and exercised within clearly defined boundaries. The freedom we have in Christ is best lived as we follow the outline of this great prophecy, an outline that we'll see in a few weeks. We'll actually sing it in a few weeks. He has told you what is good and what the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's Micah 6.8. And in that is true freedom. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Sure wish it would have been more user-friendly, but at the same time, we're glad it's not. We're glad it's truth, truth that speaks directly to our lives. And Lord, now we have a responsibility, a responsibility to act on your word. And we ask, dear Lord, that you would, that you would help us to be people who take a good, hard look at our lives and simply pray that prayer that we've talked about so many times, Lord, change me. Make me who you want me to be. Shape me and mold me to be the person you want me to be. And in that, Lord, we will find there is the true freedom that we each long for. Freedom in following you. We give these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.